from the Zimmerman Symphony Center in Canton, Ohio. This is Orchestrating Change. I'm Matthew Jenkins Yarashevitz, Associate Conductor of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. And I'm Rachel Hegemeyer, Manager of Education and Community Engagement. We are so glad you could join us. This podcast navigates issues that exist in the field of classical music and the world at large. We invite you to listen with open ears as our guests share their experiences and as we discuss these often avoided topics. To open this season, we are thrilled to be joined by Anwar Nasir, Executive Director of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. Prior to his arrival in the Big Easy in the summer of 2021, he served as Chief Revenue and Advancement Officer at the Omaha Symphony, in addition to previous positions with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, Hollywood Bowl, and Atlanta Ballet. He is a Philadelphia native and a graduate of Syracuse University who had a career as a professional dancer before pursuing arts management. He is also passionate about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the arts and serves on DEI committees with the League of American Orchestras and Tessitura Network and co-founded the Black Arts Leadership Alliance. Anwar Nasir, it is a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome to Orchestrating Change. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, this is so wonderful. Um, so uh, I've had the pleasure of meeting you at conferences and stuff since COVID has wound down a little bit and we can kind of see each other in person sometimes. Indeed. But can you tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, about, you know, little Anwar growing up in Philadelphia? What was what was your life like? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, thank you. I, I it's interesting to think about, like, growing up, I'm from South Philadelphia originally, not West Philadelphia like Will Smith, but I, I like to always play off of that a little bit. Um, but I had, the, I had the pleasure of going to a small um, boarding school for single-parent, low-income children, um, and I started in third grade. Uh, so I stayed there from third all the way through 12th, so it always feels like, even though it was in, it was in North Philadelphia, so we're, like, I was, like, five miles away at a boarding school, but... I had this experience where I would have my family at home, like on the weekends, and then I would go to school uh, Sunday night, and then I would stay there through Friday. So I kind of feel like I have two—I fa- had two families growing up: the, the the students and the teachers and house parents that I spent a lot of time with, and then I had my family at home. So I feel really fortunate to have lived in like what I feel like are multiple spaces growing up. But there was always this sense of me being a part of some kind of artistic community, and I think that. I, I remember taking my my very first both dance class and and I started playing the piano as as a kid around like maybe I would say maybe like fourth or fifth grade or so because um, my parents were like you got to do something you got to you got to be in something because if not you're gonna drive you're gonna drive us nuts <laughs> um, so I started doing both of those things around the same time and and never thought that this was gonna be like a career for me uh, both as a professional dancer but def- certainly not a professional musician by any means but I always always kept coming back to the arts in one way or another. So it's always been a part of who I who I am, what I do, um, what I've done, and what I'm going to continue to do. So it, 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 it meant a lot to me to have that as a part of my, 
my upbringing and and it's it's stuck with me uh ever since so before we get into what you currently do i'd love to hear a little bit more about your career as a professional dancer <laughs> i don't believe you went to a conservatory for dance so I did not. how did you land in dance and then ultimately <laughs> transition into arts management yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So as I mentioned, it was always something that I, that I came back to. I did, I studied dance in, in school. We had a, a very small program where if you had any artistic, pro, any artistic bone in your body, you were a part of the band, you were part of a, a part of our like theater productions, and we would have people that would come in and, and teach, um, and, and all of those disciplines. So I was, I was always gravitating back towards that. So I, I studied it, but not necessarily like going to, like you said, a conservatory or going to any like doing I would say the, the traditional path. Um, I did spend a little bit of time like outgoing to take classes in other places because it was always something that was fun for me. And it, it secretly got me off of campus, which was <laughs> always wonderful. But, um, so when I went away to, when I went, when I went to Syracuse, um, I originally thought that I was going to be a broadcast journalist, which is how I ended up with getting my degree in communication and rhetorical studies. But, um, one of the one of the wonderful parts about that program is they say, okay, well, this is this is your core, and this is what you're how, like a social essentially what they're hoping to do is for you to find a way to be able to tell stories, connect with people, and find a way to have that be central in your life, and then everything else around that was always like whatever else you're interested in. So I was always very passionate about the arts, so I was going and taking dance classes because it was easy and it was fun, and I enjoyed it, and I just loved it. But I never thought that I was going to do that professionally. So when I graduated um, from Syracuse, I went back to Philly for about six months or so, and then I moved to Atlanta. And anybody who's who's ever studied um, studied dance, music, you know, acting, whatever it might be, knows that studying is incredibly expensive, right? So continuing your education is really critical, but it also is a, it's an easy way to break the bank. Yep. So I started volunteering at the Atlanta Ballet, just one, to meet my community of people, um, and also to just find a way to take some free dance classes, because mm-hmm. it was something that I, that I enjoy doing. And as I started um, going to class and just connecting with people, and I found out that, like, I would just start getting calls for, like, hey, are you available for a gig tonight? Like, and this, I'm talking primarily, like, in the hip-hop space. That was mm-hmm. That was, I guess, more or less my bread and butter as a as a dancer was more in the hip hop space than anything else. And I was like, sure, I'm available to do it. So I was taking all kinds of live shows, music videos, um, doing choreography gigs, and it just kind of like built from there. Um, so just being connected with people and being available to take the take the jobs. So I was working during the day and then doing these other things at night, uh, kind of burning the candle at both ends. But it it gave me a tremendous respect, one, for people that are able to do just one or the other and make make it all work. But you know how it is when you're like an early, like in your early parts of your career, like you're, you know, early to mid-20s and you're like, I'm just going to take every opportunity that comes to me. So I was doing that. Uh, so I would work my eight hours in the day, then I would go teach or I would go to rehearsal, then I would shoot a music video or I would have a some, some kind of show, background dancing for someone in, in a nightclub and then turn around and do it all again the next day. Um it was incredibly exhausting. And just talking about it, I'm exhausted all over again. Wow. But I would never trade that experience for the world. It was really, really fun. And uh, I loved it. So wow. from there, I was, like I said, I was kind of managing both things at the same time. I got a part-time job in the box office at the ballet as well. And uh, that gave me the flexibility to be able to take any and every opportunity that came up as a as a gig for me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> that sounds like a very, I mean, I know my schedule and Matthew's schedule and lives are busy, but that sounds like 
a lot to juggle. My goodness. It was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. Yeah. Before you worked part-time at the box office, did you have another role at the ballet or was that no, your role? Okay. No, it was, a, I started, I started volunteering um, and I was going like maybe two or three times a week because I had not, I, I moved to Atlanta. I didn't have a job. Mm. Um, so it really gave me an opportunity, like I said, to just one, get out of the house, but two, start to plant some seeds and get yeah. connected. Uh, so no, that was my, my, I was volunteering for maybe about four or five months of doing that. And then I remember I started working, I'd say maybe around like April, May, I got, I got a job there and, um, that's when it all started to blossom from there. So, uh, so yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. And how did you pick Atlanta? I, uh, I had been once before. Um, I, it's funny. I was telling someone else the story, but I thought that, um, growing up in Philly, we're incredibly nestled between like perfectly nestled between New York. Baltimore and DC. So I was like, if I leave Philly, I'm probably going to end up in one of these three cities. And of course I go like all the way South to Atlanta, but I had visited once, once or twice before. Um, I had done a show there as well. And I was like, I kind of like the city. It felt good. You know, we're talking about the, like the mid two thousands or so. So at the time it was like hip hop capital of the, of the country. There was so much that was happening and I just felt like this kind of gravitational pull there. And I made a couple of friends and it just felt like felt like a good place to give it, you know, to give it a shot. And the other side of it is that there was so much, um, so much activity and it was just a booming city. Um, like the growth, it just exploded in the, around that time. And it just felt like one, it was, a, it was much more affordable, I think, than moving to any one of those other cities. But two, it's just like, if I'm going to give it a shot, I'll give it a shot now. If it works, it works. And if it doesn't, I can always go back. Uh, Cause I was, I still felt young enough that I was like, if I have to go home and, you know, live in my, live with my parents again, I can do that without <laughs> any shame. So uh, I just took the leap of faith and, and wow. went for it. So from going to this obviously exciting hip-hop dance life mm-hmm. while doing a little bit of administration, you then have now transitioned into full-time arts administration. We mentioned Hollywood Bowl. We mentioned um, Atlanta yeah. Ballet. So what about the arts admin field, this field of work keeps you as excited and as engaged as maybe your time as a dancer. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, like I said, I started out, uh, on the truly on the administration side and, um, working in the box office and it gave me an opportunity to really see, um, the inner workings, you know, when you're, when you're a box office person, you kind of interact with all of the different facets of the organization, which I think is really, really interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're talking with donors, you're talking with, um, single ticket buyers, you're talking with subscribers, you're talking with production because they have to understand like, okay, well, you know, we're bringing in, um, we have to kill a certain amount because we're doing a stage extension or there's a, you know, there's a projector and there's a screen and we got it. So all of those things, I was just, I felt like it was a very much a crash course into all of the facets of how the organization works. And especially working in a ballet company, because you also like have a school too. So, and you know, you have all of the kids around Nutcracker. So you're dealing with all the parents and you're, <laughs> like also at that time, uh, our office was, was positioned in the lobby. So I was just seeing all the kids coming and going consistently. So it was really like this 360 view of what it takes to make an organization operate. And I was just like, this is really, really fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I, I, like, I think, you know, now fast forward, you know, 20 years later that there was, there was a part of me that, that realized and recognized that I really love this side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, because I knew that I was never going to be able to dance forever. I knew that I was never going to be able to, um, 
be, I, I, I shouldn't say, I didn't, I didn't want to be on the artistic side, mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of my life. It just, it, it, it's, while it's fun, um, I think it's just, it's, it takes a very different kind of individual to have that person feel like that's a home for them. And I just knew that that wasn't for me. So I said, well, I could be a part of all of the behind the scenes stuff, or even the stuff that's in front of the scenes, but still, or in front of the camera, that still makes the organization tick and operate and allows us to really impact our community in different ways. And that meant something to me. So that that felt really good. And as I've continued to build my career over the course of all of the different organizations that I've worked as a part of, it it always makes me feel fulfilled that when, you know, I'm at the the recital or I'm at our community concert or I'm at, you know, one of our subscription concerts, it's like all of the work that I'm getting to do feels really good for me. Um, and that's what, that's what helps get me out of bed every day. That I is love that. Wonderful. It makes me so happy when I talk to other arts admin people who say and feel a lot of the same things I say and feel. It just makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> So what specifically drew you to the orchestra? You, mm. You've done a lot of work with orchestral yeah. organizations. Yeah. Not not so, playing an orchestral instrument as a child. What drew <laughs> you to the orchestra? Yeah, absolutely. So um, around, the, around um, maybe about almost 10 years into my, my dancing career, um, I had a slight tear in my ACL. And I had a I had a moment where I went to see um, see a specialist for it, and he told me you could either um, let it heal naturally, but you're it's going to slow you down just naturally. Um, but also just getting older, it's just you're just naturally going to slow down. Um, or we could have the surgery, and it's going to take you out for a year. Um, and I said, well, if I'm slowing down anyway, I might as well just let it go, and because I, I may never come back from this if I do have the surgery. So I continued to dance on it, and uh, fortunately, it didn't get worse, but I realized very quickly that my own abilities were starting to to, to wane a little bit. Like, on, in the dance world, you're constantly, like, you're constantly having to prove yourself. It's always like, what have you done for me lately mm-hmm. uh, kind of thing. So I'm taking auditions, and I'm taking, like, gigs, and I'm realizing that there are people out here that are, like, 10 years younger than me um, that are so much better than I ever could have been. And it started to just, I think, wear and tear on me. Um, and I, and I realized that like, okay, maybe it's time for me to start to think about a change. Um, and that was a little bit of a hard decision to make, but, um, but I've since made my peace with it. And I was looking for like that next opportunity, um, for me as an administrator. Um, by this point I had had, like, I started off part-time in the box office. Then I became like group sales manager. And then I was like head of the box office, head of patron services. And I realized that there was like a ceiling, uh, that was there where people kind of see you in very much an operational operational space. Mm. Sales, customer service, like that kind of thing. And I knew that I had so much more to contribute, I think, to um, to the world than, um, than just that. So I was looking for like my next big thing as I was sunsetting as a dancer and really thinking about, okay, well, what kind of opportunities could there be for me? And this position came up with the LA Phil. And I was like, oh, I like LA. Uh, I, I see myself living there. Uh, I love this city-based so, amazing. jumping into God, that's like, incredible. It's, it's, it's been very much city-based until uh, after that. We'll, we'll circle back to it. <laughs> but um, I, I, at this point, I had been to LA a few times, and I was like, oh, I really like this city. Um, I had never uh, seen nor heard the LA Phil before, but I said that this could be this could be something special, and it felt like this is a natural progression for me. Um, 
And and I think that, like I said, you know, hindsight is always twenty twenty. But I think it's what I needed at that moment to step away from the dance world and really have like almost like a clean break. Yeah. So that way I could be in a different space, do some different things um, and think about things like totally different. Whereas I wouldn't be missing being on stage or being, in, you know, being a teacher or being having an opportunity to um, to to dance at this point. So I was like, it's going to be like night and day for me. So um, I applied for the job, got the job and then was like, what was it like two or three weeks later, I'm like loading up a U-Haul and driving across the country. I got to the LA Phil and it was just like, like my, I was just like, whoa, this is, this is such a total, like total different, like animal and beast for me. Like I had been in that space, like the ballet had an orchestra as well. I played in the band um, in high school, middle school and high school. So was accustomed to it, but not on that level. You know, it's like such a massive organization. Like it, it operates like a Fortune 500 company because there's so much activity, so much to do, so many people that it takes to really make it uh, operate on such like that, just that high level of efficiency. But what was special about the LA Phil is one, um, they also have the Hollywood Bowl, um, which gives you um, a total, total different, different space. You know, yeah. like you have a you have a venue that is 18,000 seats, and then you have this like state-of-the-art venue in the Walt Disney Concert Hall that's very much intimate. It's very new. It feels very good. And then you have an orchestra that is obviously one of the best in the world. And it just like opened my eyes to so much. But one thing that the LA Phil does really, really well, and and like a, like quite a few orchestras are, across the country, is that they operate more as a as a producer and a presenter and a curator, and as opposed to just being an orchestra that sits on stage and plays, you know, the classics. Like they're really thinking about how can we be forward thinking? How can we be innovative? How can we be creative? How can we support our community in new ways? And that felt really, really good for me. I wouldn't have been able to articulate that when I went. It was just like, oh, I have a job that's gonna take me to LA. It's gonna give me an opportunity to do something a little different. But when I got there, it was just like, wow, this is really, really fantastic. And it felt so good to be a part of that organization. While I was there, we did so many amazing, amazing things that I just was like a sponge, just soaking up everything. We had our centennial uh, celebration while I was there. That felt really, really good. And I just said, this orchestra is really something special. And I'm just happy to be here. And how they invest in their people, I think, is really was really critical for me. I just felt so welcomed. And felt so a, a part of something special. And when it came time for me to think about doing something different, I said, I have to figure out whether I like working for orchestras or whether I like working for this orchestra. Um, and that was the, the tipping point that got me um, got me out of uh, out of L.A. because I was like, I have to figure this out and figure this out now. Um, and then, you know, the rest is history from there. Yeah. L.A. is... Um... I've, I've been blessed to be able to see the L.A. Phil um, in a couple performances, both at the Hollywood Bowl and in Walt Disney. And you're right, the curation that they do and take – I mean, they take pride in new music, and, 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 and it's mm-hmm. really cool to see. Um, and uh, a podcast guest from last season, Angelica Negron, last time she had a premiere at the last league conference, so it was so cool uh, to see. It was such a great piece, yeah. too. It was so cool. It had it this off, really the big. flower, like, wilting away effect. It was really cool. Anyway. Um, yes. <laughs> but through this, now, like, discovering that you really like working in an orchestra, you've now really dove in and really participate in 
uh, the League of American Orchestras and all these different training programs. So there's Essentials of Orchestral Management, which mm-hmm. I also did, which is such a great program. Um, and yeah. then you also did the Emerging Leaders Program, which is a really intense, I think it's like a year-long or a season-long program. Can you talk yes. a little bit about those programs and like the impact they have had on you as a leader now in this industry? Indeed. No, that I would 100% agree that I, I took the Essentials of Orchestra Management program first, and which is a, for, for those who don't know, it's a, it's a 10 day seminar, um, where you kind of get a sneak peek into all of the facets of how an organization operates. So it's everything from fundraising to marketing to operations to negotiations mm-hmm. to community development and managing musicians and managing yourself. And so it, it gave me this really, really wonderful opportunity to see how an orchestra operates on a lot of different levels, but by by that point, I hadn't really connected with, um, I, th- I think I took it maybe like 2017 or so, just from a, from a time, time period standpoint. And I'd been in LA for maybe about three or four years and just the speed and the pace at which LA goes, um, I hadn't really connected a lot with many of my orchestra colleagues. I had been, a, been in the dance space a lot. I had been with my, my ticketing people, my ticketing, my sales, my customer service people a lot, but I hadn't really connected a lot with the, the orchestra folks. So it gave me an opportunity to really think about, all right. And this was, I think this was like the planning of the seed of like, do I like working for orchestras or do I like working for this one mm-hmm. specifically? And, and meeting so many wonderful people that are in orchestras, large and small across the country was really, really fantastic for me because even though, you know, the LA Phil is one of the biggest orchestras in the country, our, our problems and our challenges are not dramatically different from, from anyone else's, yeah. right? Like people tend to think like, oh, it's the LA Phil. They have all of this money. They can do whatever they want. And it's like, that's not always the case. You know, we're, we still, uh, and all of us are trying to figure out like, how do we retain subscribers? How do we stay relevant? How do we, you know, continue to impact our community? How do we raise more money? All of those things. So, being in essentials was really, really wonderful for me to just meet so many people and hear the challenges and hear like, how do we as orchestras help like change the landscape of the communities around us? And that, that felt really, really good for me. Um, so I took a year off from, from doing that program. And then I did the, the emerging leaders program with the league uh, after that. And that program, whereas essentials is more um, very pragmatic and very like thoughtful in terms of, you know, connecting the dots between, like I said, marketing, fundraising, and all of those things and how orchestras work. And emerging leaders is more in like introspective and really thinking about like, how do I show up in the work that I need to do every day? And how does that help move the orchestra and the field forward in interesting ways? So it's much less like, okay, this is the role that having like, you know, a great community program could have versus thinking about like, are we really, am am I as a leader asking the right questions or am I as a leader really making sure that the the community program that we're having is truly serving the community and how do I show up in that? And that is like, they're two totally different, two totally different things, but they both for me were able, like it, it, it would allow me to come full circle and allow me to feel like man, this is truly, truly awesome. And like I said, that was the, between those two programs, they were only, like I said, I only did them about a year, a year or so apart. But that's, that was like the planting of the seeds of like, I could be doing so, so much more than what I'm doing right here. Even though the work that I was doing in LA was really, really fantastic. I said, if I like, if I get plucked out of here tomorrow, this organization is going to be fine. 
right? But if I go to another organization, like really what kind of impact could I have in helping to like really move us forward and really think about um, the way that I get to, this orchestra gets to serve the community, but also um, from the unique chair that I, that I sat in is like, now I'm in the C-suite. So really getting to say, no, no, we're not going to invest our time, energy, and resources here. We're going to go in this direction. Uh, and that was really, um, that for me was just an eye-opening opportunity to just say, now I get to help influence the, the trajectory of this organization in a really, really positive way. Yeah. Amazing. So a little over a year ago, you arrived in your current position as executive director of the Louisiana Philharmonic. And as you said, you are now in a position where you can make these decisions and guide the direction of the orchestra. What did accepting this position mean to you? It really meant a lot. Uh, it really meant a lot. Like to think that, you know, less than, at this point, uh, less than 10 years ago, I took my very first orchestra job. And now here I am, you know, leading an orchestra. Uh, it it meant a lot to me. And I, and I think what's what's really helpful here is that, and, and you asked me about this earlier, of like, what is the, the orchestral world meant to me? Is I feel like they have embraced me and have said, you know, you have something, something to say and you can help us move forward and we're going to help you move us along. Um, so stepping into this role just kind of like felt like a, a, a stamp of validation um, that we're all in this together and that everything that I've been pouring into this field is now being, you know, poured back into me. So it's a, it feels very reciprocal and it feels mm -hmm. so, been, like I, I just I, I'm overwhelmed with like joy still even a, a year later, but but also coming into you know my my very first ex executive director job um, in a city like New Orleans is really really fantastic. You know this is a community that looks looks very much like me than not, which feels really good. Um, so when you know when I'm out in the community or I'm, I'm speaking with people and I'm I'm trying to you know tell them about the orchestra and the role that the orchestra plays in the community, they're like. I've never seen someone like you leading an orchestra before. Mm -hmm. And that they say, well, you must be doing good things. One for the orchestra to place their trust in you. And I, I said, yeah, I'm incredibly grateful for this orchestra to, to do that. But there's a certain level of credibility that I think that comes when we say that the orchestra really wants to be a resource for the city of New Orleans, for the, the community that around us and, and for the state as well. So for me, it just, it, it, it's given me such uh, such an opportunity to say that we can do the work and we can do it well and we can do it like community first um, and really stand behind that. And I know that, you know, I'm not the first person to say that, but I think to do it in a community that looks very much like me will really help to continue to plant seeds and, and deepen the roots and, and really connect us with our community even more. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. Now, when you first arrived, was the patronage of the orchestra mm -hmm. – did, did the patronage of the orchestra reflect the racial demographic of the city, or is that a project that you are endeavoring as executive director? Yeah, I, I would say that our, our patronage doesn't look any different than any other orchestras, even though we're in a, we're in a city that is, you know, I would say, I think we're about 60 to 65% black, um, which is really interesting uh, mm. to me. But I think that when we do 
like like anyone, when we do programs that are really focused on connecting with different facets of our community, the community does show up mm. in, a way, in a way that is meaningful and relevant to them. Yeah. So part of part of my goal and my mission here is to really think about like, okay, we we've been we've been trying to serve this community for a while, and it's almost been like almost like tent poles. Like we'll do a program, it'll attract a lot of people in, and then they won't come back until the next program that we do. So I start to I start to think about like, okay, well, how do we start to draw a through line between it and, and move this like, you know, it doesn't have these up and down moments mm. that we get to see that there's there's true, like, there's a true commitment to serving a diverse segment of the city in a way that's meaningful and relevant to them. So it's not always necessarily doing like a community concert or going and playing in a church or whatever it might be. It's just like, okay, we want to make sure that the music that is relevant to the people here, we're going to, we're going to highlight and we're going to support these artists and we're going to connect with them. You know, I would say that the, the artistic team here has very, been very thoughtful. The artistic team and the musicians um, are very, very thoughtful around what our, what our role and our value is to the community. So we've really been investing back into New Orleans and Louisiana based artists. And by nature, they're just naturally going to be more diverse by doing so. Mm. Like we know that we're never going to be, you know, we're like when it comes to playing like the, you know, the, the war horses or the classics or the masterworks as some people call them. Um, you know, we're never going to be Berlin. We're never going to be New York. We're never going to be Chicago. We're never going to be LA. And, and that's fine. But what we can be is the, the orchestra that is here in New Orleans that plays the music by the people that have been born, bred, raised their families here that have created, um, created their music here. And there's a, there's a strong orchestral tradition uh, here in the city. So I think that there's like a unique opportunity for us to really lean in on that and connect us back to um, the music that that is here. We have a show coming up in, in April of next year uh, with Big Frida, uh, who's a bounce artist. Um, it's going to be the very first opportunity to hear bounce music played with an orchestra um, before. I'm a little worried about how this is going to sound, but, I, but we're doing all the right things to make sure that it sounds right. Um, but doing it in a way that is re- that really play- pays homage and respect to the traditions of the music, I think will will really allow us to do well, um, both artistically and commercially. Mm-hmm. I I think that's so. In- one thing about um, orchestras that we've thought a lot about, like on the podcast and here at, at the Canton Symphony, and that I think a lot about as someone working in community engagement is that especially American orchestras, because orchestra comes from this European tradition. American orchestras are really, I think, starting to realize that our identities have to be a lot more individualistic, like the American identity kind of is. Every community is different. Every orchestra is going to have to be different because we're all in these different communities. And I think that that's so beautiful with Louisiana pouring into Louisiana music and that beautiful, because that makes sense. That's logical. If we're serving our audiences and those people, we want to find ways to connect with what's there instead of maybe trying to um, force feed something <laughs> that isn't as uh, as appealing to, to that audience. But um, Louisiana is also pretty unique in a lot of ways. So um, going a little bit more uh, nitty-gritty structurally with the Louisiana <laughs> Philharmonic or- Orchestra, I remember in Essentials of Orchestra Management – what we did case studies learn about different organizations and how they function in different things. And Louisiana is one of them because of the way that it's run, because it's very different. So I'll read. Um, so it is the oldest full-time musician-governed and collabor- collaboratively operated orchestra. 
which yes. means something, right? <laughs> so can you maybe <laughs> yeah. explain how Louisiana <laughs> is different from other American orchestras in the way that it actually operates? Indeed. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating model that um, that I think was also part of the thing that attracted me to this organization. By being musician-governed, it's actually musician-owned mm-hmm. as well. So when you think about, um, like, say, for instance, like Apple or Google, and they have shareholders, right, that actually own the company. Um, our musicians are the, quote-unquote, shareholders of our organization. So they're the ones who ultimately get to say that this is the direction that the organization is going to go in. So our, whenever we have what we call a corporate meeting, it is amongst all of the musicians of the orchestra. Uh, and that, that feels really, really fantastic because um, there's a level of investment that is not, I just sit on stage and play this. Um, it's that they are very much rooted in everything that we do as an organization. And that, to me, means so much because there isn't the, okay, well, the board wants to go in one direction, the staff want to go in another direction, and the musicians want to go in another direction, and then, you know, there's all this constant tension that's happening. It's like, no, there has to be alignment um, for us to make any kind of steps forward, which I think is really, really helpful for us as an organization. So you have the, the musicians as the corporate members. When it comes to the board of trustees, there are... Uh, there's representation from the musicians and your community um, trustees. So much like you would see in your traditional uh, nonprofit organization where you have uh, your trustees that are your fiduciaries, but also the musicians are fiduciaries as well. And then the staff, we get to help serve and support and feel like a part of all of those things and really be in service of the organization as a whole. So everything from... um, who's going to be leading the orchestra to what we decide to play, to what we're going to do from an education and community space, to how we raise funds and how we take on new, creative, exciting ideas. It's all run by committees. Um, And what it does is it makes sure that there's always multiple voices in the room whenever we decide to make a big decision. Now, of course, you know, you can't do everything by committee. Like we're, you know, we're not figuring out whether we're going to, um, use this type of paper versus that type of paper in the office copier. But when we say, okay, well, how many, how many, um, how many concerts do we want to have this year? How long do we want the season to be? How, uh, who do we want to lead the orchestra uh, as a guest conductor? How do we, I mean, most, you know, music director searches are a totally different thing, but when we think about all of those, those wonderful things, like we have a a fantastic partnership with the opera um, and we, we say, okay, well, what's, what's exciting to us and how do we, how do we want to push ourselves artistically it's all done in, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, around around a, ta- a round table. And we say, okay, well, what are the big ideas? What are we thinking about? Where do we want to be in five years? And how do we help build towards that? And it, what it does is it gives us buy-in right on the ground floor. So it isn't a, okay, now I need to go and talk to the musicians about it. And now I need to go sell it to the board. It's like everybody's in the room all the time, which I think is really, really helpful um, because there's there's so much more trust, I think, amongst us. And that really helps us, I think, operate on a much more um, thoughtful and committed level um, to not only serving serving our musicians and our community, but really connecting all of those things together and really building it out like an ecosystem. So it feels really good. It does take time uh, as well, you know, like any like anything. Working through a commu- like working through a committee structure is always always can be slow at times. 
but it, like I said, it, it prevents challenges on the back end because everybody's there on the ground floor. So it's really, really helpful. That buy-in um, and everyone that that's seems like to me the most exciting part of what you just said is is this idea that people have a buy-in and a voice and ownership of what's going on. And I feel like in any orchestra struggling to take the ideas that I'm conceiving as a staff person who's creating the educational content and making sure it's like, okay, how do I write an email to my musicians to make to, so that they understand why I chose to do this thing? And um, I try to do that. Who knows if it's actually effective, but it would be it would be cool. Um, but you're right. I, I don't envy maybe the time and the scheduling and the logistics that are required <laughs> to get everyone in the room. Yeah. I mean, and it, it does, it does present challenges, but you know, you, you, I think I, I try to make sure that we're allotting time to work through it, you know? So it just means we just have to be so much more intentional with the things that we uh, need to do. So if there's a big initiative, we try to make sure that we back it up um, far enough that we, we leave enough space for debate. Um, and also building enough, um, trust that sometimes when the, when the quick decisions need to be made, that they know that they're, it's always coming from the right place. Um, and, you know, from my specific role, you know, as, as the executive director that I can, you know, and maybe not always bring together the full committee, but I might place a few strategic phone calls saying, Hey, you know, this thing just came up. I need your, I need to bend your ear on something. You know, what do you think? before we go ahead and make that, like I said, a big or a rash decision. It's like, you know, I might call the orchestra president, I'll call the board president, I'll call, you know, the head of the programming committee or the head of the education committee and just say, hey, this is coming up. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Um, should we take this to the full committee? Do we need to call an emergency meeting? Or can this wait a little bit later? Or can we just move on? And they're like, more often than not, um, because I think we've built a good, uh, a good trust amongst each other, they say, you know, I trust your instincts, just go for it. And then we'll talk about it when the time is right. Um, and then we, you know, we deal with it as it, as it comes up. Wow. So this is fascinating to me because uh, I went to graduate school in New York City at Manus College of Music. And something I found that it was disappointing to me was that so many of my instrumental colleagues really were not that interested in orchestra. And, and for a lot of them, orchestra was not in their future. It was not in their future plans. And when I talked to them about it, they said, you know, I just don't feel as a player in an orchestra, and especially string players mm. said this, as just a player in a string section of an orchestra, I can really explore who I am as an artist yeah. in the way I want and have agency over yeah. the art I create. And I think mm -hmm. that the structure of the Louisiana Philharmonic really seems to address that in a yeah. really unique way in the orchestra world. So I'm curious, as a conductor, um, I did poke around your website a little <laughs> bit, and I believe it is your music director's final season, if I saw that correctly. So it is. you are about to go into a yeah. music director search, or you're probably already in the midst of We're a music it. director it's search. Happening. It's happening. We're, in it. We're up to here. <laughs> right. So how are the musicians involved yeah. in the music director search in a way that they wouldn't be at any other orchestra? Yeah. Yeah, yeah well, what's what's fascinating is that um, I think by, by nature, like our, even though our, our structure is dramatically different, there's still a committee that, that comes together to, to work through it. So, you know, I've been fortunate enough when I got to Omaha, we were in a music director search, um, as well. 
And now here we are, you know, here I am again Help. going through this. <laughs> um, so most, most organizations will have a, a small committee that will include musicians, um, community members, either board members or, or outside members, and then um, a staff member or two. So we have a very similar committee here that helps um, helps vet and uh, figure out like, okay, well, what qualities are we looking for? What are we, what are we really thinking about from, what do we want in our next leader as a music director? Um, and by, by having that, like I said, that 360 view at all times, we really know, and we work very closely together. So we know like from a, from a programming standpoint or from an artistic um, and our education and community uh, engagement standpoint, we know what it is that we want. And there are representatives from so many of these other committees as a part of this larger committee that get to say, all right, from the perspective of, like I said, education and community or for programming, like these are the qualities that we need. And we built out a profile, or I should say they built out a profile because like I said, they've been doing this for, for quite a few years now. Um, and we said at like coming back last year from the pandemic, uh, like, do these things still matter to us? And do, are they weighted the same way that they were maybe pre pandemic? And there was a little bit of adjustment um, to it, but I, but I think that, once we decide like, okay, these are the folks that we want to see, and these are the reasons why we want to see them, then it becomes a totally different, a totally different game because it's not like we're just saying, okay, well, these are all the conductors that we want to work with on an, on an annual basis. It's like, no, we're actually thinking about like, could this person be our next music director? And that changes everything from the way that like, it's no longer just how are they going to leave from the podium, but it's like, okay, well, how are they going to connect with the audience? How are they going to leave from, or how are they, excuse me, how are they going to leave rehearsals? Are they communicating well with our head of programming and saying, these are the reasons why I'm selecting these programs. Uh, are they willing and open to go and talk to, you know, some of the students around town or talk to, um, you know, are some of our other partners and what is their willingness like? So your, your eyes are open in a, in a new way. You're now, you're like your antennae or your antennae are up saying, I'm paying attention to everything. Um, but also like knowing our model specifically, you start to think about like, is this person collaborative? Are they thoughtful? How do they communicate with others? Do they treat people with respect? And all of these things are, it's no different than what I think any other music director will be asked to do. But I think by nature, there is not this music director on a hill. Like they're not going to be able to come into the LPO and say, this is what I want to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And then be done with it. Like they have to be so much more open and responsive and respectful, I think, than, than what it would be in any other environment. But also understanding that, you know, they have to be willing to be challenged um, and be challenged by the people that you're supposed to lead is a very, very different thing than being challenged by me as their as their peer or challenged by the board as the you know ultimately who they report to um you know you have to be able to to lead and follow in an interesting way and we know that that's a quality that that good conductors and great music directors have but it has to be so much more explicit mm. um in in our environment than what it would be in um in your traditional traditional model mm -hmm. so i would say that the the musicians here um, are acutely aware of that and really will overemphasize that they ultimately have the, the, the vote and the role, the vote and the ownership over the success or the failure of this person. So that makes it so much more that's at yeah. play here with them specifically. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And when the final vote is made, do they all get a vote? 
Yeah, every every musician that is either um, tenured or is on contract uh, with us gets a, gets a vote. Um, so they you know they have to vote, and we want to make sure that it that it feels good because there isn't this like um, there isn't this like well it's not it's not my show right they can't they can't opt out of this it's like no you have to do it mm-hmm. um, you have to be a part of this because it's just it's 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 baked into who we are as an organization so uh, so yeah. And again, completely unique in the world. I'm trying to think if there are The Berlin Philharmonic is, they vote on their music director, the musicians, but really, generally, that's not how it works. Yeah, it's it's unique. There's a lot of unique things about Louisiana, and it's it's fun to talk with you about them because I've only read about them. Um, (laughs) But going back to a little bit what you said earlier, when you were appointed – to the LPO as executive director. Um, at that time in America, you were the only black executive director of a major American orchestra. There were no other mm-hmm. uh, black executive directors. Now, Robert Reed is at the Madison Symphony Orchestra. That happened back in March, really recently, yes. um, which is really exciting. But you're so involved in DEI work now. We mentioned some committees. You're for the League of American Orchestras, Tessa Tura Network. You've co-founded the Black Arts Leadership Alliance, um, which – um, I'll let you talk about what that is, but why do you think that this work, DEI work, and you know this work of inclusion and making our staff, our executive directors, our music directors, what have you, look like the communities we serve is so important? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 such a, a fascinating time to be a part of this work and and to lend my my own time and energy to it because it's it's so important. Um, I, I, I think that there is a, there, there, we've been, we, as people that have been in this industry and who have been in this industry or who have grown up in it, who have, who know it through and through know that there's always been like the orchestra is dying, the orchestra is dying, you know, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. Right. Yeah. Um, and we know that it, it hasn't fallen yet, <laughs> so <laughs> it's going to be, it's going to be fine, but but I see it as I see I see this work as a part of just continuing to make ourselves be relevant to the community around us and be welcoming. You know, by by nature, what we do is is like there's no one saying that what an orchestra does is for a certain group of people. And we we see it where there's a there's a space that we open up we open up our doors and we say that. We, we can't say that this is like some of the greatest music that's ever been written and say, no, only these people can hear it or only these people are supposed to be a part of it. Like those two things don't make sense. Um, so we only benefit by just, you know, kicking down walls and, you know, opening as, as like just saying, this is a space for you. But also it, it works both ways. Like by knocking down those walls, that also means like we can now go out even more than what we were doing before. And show up and really be, uh, like I said earlier, like a resource for our community in ways that are truly uh, meaningful for them. Um, you know, I, I, I tell the story all the time. Like I said, I went earlier, I went to a, a small um, school in, in North Philadelphia that was only about maybe four or five miles away from where the Philadelphia Orchestra plays. Um, but they would come to our school and do a, do a concert every year. Now, we were fortunate enough to have the resources to like get on a bus and go, you know, down to the hall and hear them, but they felt that it was important enough for them to come and and play for us. 
And to me, that just shows that, um, and, the, and like I said, the school is, is a lot of them look like, look like me as well, but it, it allowed them to think about like, all right, it's not just a, let's go and, you know, hear the orchestra play. They're going to play some Brahms or they're going to play Peter and the Wolf and it's going to be <laughs> fine. Um, but just feeling like the orchestra is investing back in us. So now I want to make sure that people are thinking about, okay, if we're going to go out and we're going to play in the community, let's actually go to the places where the community needs and wants us to be. And not just saying we're going to go, I got to stop doing this. I always pick on Brahms, but we're not just going to go <laughs> and play Brahms and, you know, in a neighborhood where they might not know who he is, know what kind of music he's composed or think like this music may not be for, for, for them. So what do you want to hear? What do you want us to do? What do you want? Where do you, where do you, how do you want us to show up? Like, maybe you don't want the full orchestra to come. Maybe you just need a, maybe you need one musician to come out and play and do a little instrument demo and talk about how they got into the, into the, their path. Maybe it's a little quartet that needs to go and play, uh, play somewhere or like it's all of those things is it's, it's really, really critical to be able to say, let's do something a little bit different. Let's think about things differently. And to do that, I think you need people that look different, that think different, that came from different backgrounds, that are influenced in different ways, that listen to different types of music, that grew up in orchestra, you know, grew up playing in the orchestra, that didn't grow up playing in the orchestra. Like you need all of those different types of people to be a part of it. So that way, when you're having those conversations, you're actually having the diversity of thought. Um, ultimately is what it is. We're looking for diversity of thought, most, most likely uh, in these situations. So when we say now that like, you know, you, you mentioned like Robert Reed, you know, there's also Blake Anthony Johnson at the Chicago yeah, Symphonietta. Blake. And, Blake's going to be on know, the podcast this season. I'm excited. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Burrell, um at Chicago Phil, and there's just like, there are so many, like, you know, all of us grew up differently mm-hmm. and we all have different opinions, even though we're all black. There's like yeah. so many, you know, we're, we're all going to bring something different to the table, which I think is really, really, really fun. Um, so what that, what that means for me is really making sure that I want to have as many smart people in the room as possible. So then that way, one, not only are they going to be able to make a connection and say they're going to bring their lived experience and bring their own, um, their own unique perspective to the table, but I have to have the mindset of like, I got to make sure that the table is big enough for all of these people to bring it to bring it in. And I think that it, it ultimately will, will, you know, serve us, you know, selfishly to say, I have the biggest table possible. Yeah. And when it comes time for me to say, do you know this person? Can you make an introduction for me? Um, we need to raise some new funds. Like, what are we thinking about here? Our community programs are going a little stagnant. Do we, how do we think about things a little bit differently? And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And so welcoming all of those, um, all of those different opinions are, is really, really critical to, to doing that. And, and, and I've heard this phrase before is like, you always want to make sure that you're trying to reach as far to the, like the most marginalized people as you can, because everybody else that's in between where you are and where those folks are will be brought right along with it. Uh, so that is really, really, really helpful. And I just try to make sure that I'm doing the work that I can do from my chair with my lived experience, and then hopefully be able to, like I said, build the biggest table that I can. So that way we can do more and more and more. I love that. I so love that. <laughs> tell us a little bit about the Black Arts Leadership Alliance yeah. and yeah. and the work that this organization does. 
For sure, for sure. So when I when I got to this this was born out of out of Omaha. Uh, my time in Omaha, there was um, we had when I when I started, there were maybe between the symphony and Omaha Performing Arts, which is um, they're they're a presenter, but they also manage the venues uh, that we performed in. There were maybe three, two or three black people that worked in these organizations, and I was one of them. Um, so as myself and the person who was the head of HR um, for Omaha Performing Arts, um, we said, we have to create a space that's welcoming and open and really feeling like we're not alone on this island um, here in, in arts administration, but also, you know, Omaha's perfectly positioned in the middle of the country. So really thinking about um, a space that for administrators, specifically black administrators, because like I said, they're, when we start to think about like most marginalized in our spaces, like I think at the, at the time when, when she and I were having this conversation, you know, we were trying to figure out like, okay, well, do we make it as broad and, and welcome in as like any people of color? And she said, no, I want to be very, very specific with who we're targeting here and making sure that the, that the people that look like you and I know that we're not just a part of a, a like we can, yes, be a part of a larger group. Mm -hmm but that we're going specifically after this group that can now know that there are more people like us. When you go with just people of color, that can mean a lot of things. And then all of a sudden you become a little bit more homogenized mm -hmm. in that. And uh, so I was like, great, I'm on board with it. So we said, okay, well, let's, so because she was head of HR and was very thoughtful about trying to build out the team um, at Omaha Performing Arts, I think they had hired two or three black people um, that have come in on the administrative side. Um, and we had hired one um, on the staff at, at the Omaha Symphony. And we said, we're going to bring this small group of people together and we're going to make sure that we're one, just going to be a resource for each other to have a place to just say, are you okay? You know, are you, do you, you know, know that the work that you're doing, you feel, you know, you are valued. We see you, we appreciate you and just love on one another. Um, and then we said, okay, well, you know, she and I were in senior leadership roles. So we said, we want to do some mentoring. We want to think about like, okay, if someone's trying to advance their career, how do they help build um, to get there? So we were doing like resume workshops and really thinking about like, all right, how do I get into a career in the arts? Um and then we said, okay, well, that meant now we got to go out and we got to start talking to schools. We got to do job fairs. We got to do all these things. Uh, and I think part of it was self-serving for her, you know, as head of HR to like, I got to make sure I'm like bringing in the most diverse people that I can. Um, but knowing that people would say, I've never seen somebody that looks like you doing this work before. And what she and I have, you know, ultimately been able to do with, with kind of founding this group and really thinking about, um, how do we help serve other black arts leaders of uh, saying, we just need to make ourselves as visible as possible. So that meant going out and speaking at conferences, doing, you know, things just like this. Um, she's now um, work, working for the Broadway league and leading their wow. Broadway uh, uh, change uh, wow. podcast, specifically around um, people of color. And it has just grown into now, like she's in New York. I'm here. One of our other original members is now in Massachusetts. Um, so we're just like starting to grow and grow and grow. And we, we, we operate in a space where it's like, there's a little bit of business, but there's always still that 
that just making sure that people feel connected um, to each other and giving each other space and opportunity to talk about the challenges and the things that we're seeing and, and how are we pushing each other to say, no, you're not thinking big enough. Like one of the things that we talked about in one of our, our meetings, I would say maybe about a year or so ago, were about land acknowledgments. You know, I don't know if either of you have been yeah. been around at a conference or something like that where they acknowledge the land that they're occupying, um, primarily being either ceded or unceded land from, you know, traditionally Native American tribes. Yeah. And we talked about, like, what does that mean for us as Black people and how do we feel about that? Mm-hmm. So giving us space and opportunity to to talk about it in a safe space where we don't have to be the person who's leading that conversation or being in a room with potentially other people of color or a, a just as a wide open space and saying it gave us an opportunity to like talk through our emotions in, in a, a quote unquote, like not only brave space, but a safe space amongst each other. So that's the role that it has been playing over the last couple of years now. And it, and it feels really, really helpful yeah. um, for us to be able to do so. Yeah. That I, I know how helpful it is for me to be able to talk to female leaders in, in this industry and, you know, uh, just call them, text them and just ask a question and just have, so having someone like you to talk to and know that you can, you can share conversation within a safe space is so essential. What do you think is something that, um, uh, white people in arts administration could do to create safer spaces in our work environments? Yeah, I, I, I think it's a, it's a great question because, you know, just by nature of the, I would say the country that we're in, we're in the, the country that we're in and the work that we do, right? We're going to be in the minority more often than not. So I would say one, allowing people, people of color and black administrators specifically to um, just be who they are first and foremost, right? Not asking them to either lead their, you know, their EDI initiatives or their task group or, you know, whatever it might be, just saying, do you want to be a part of this or no? And and that's totally fine. Um, But not asking them to take on any additional work without either compensating them for it or giving them the opportunity to say yes or no uh, for it. Give them the space to just, like I said, operate and be like a whole human being, the second part is not expecting to speak for everyone. Mm. You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier about like Robert, you know, Blake, Anthony, myself, like we all have different lived experiences. So what I might feel about a certain thing would be completely different than how one of them might feel. Give them the opportunity to lead in a way that's meaningful for them or not. Um, And don't give them like, don't push too hard. If it's, um, if, because sometimes it can be too much uh, for certain people. The, the other thing that I, that I think is, is, is really, really interesting is allowing them and us, I should say, to be our authentic selves, you know, wholeheartedly. You know, I, I, I spoke about this before. Um, I, I went back and I spoke at Essentials of Orchestra Management this summer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know, like we talked about earlier, I just completed my first year uh, here. And, and occasionally I will wear like white sneakers with my suit. Um, one, because I just try to be a really fashionable person. Um, <laughs> but two, um, I will always want to make sure that if there are people that are coming to concerts, um, or I'm in the community or something like that, that people know that it's okay 
to wear sneakers to come to one of our concerts. Like, I don't want them to feel like because they see the orchestra and, you know, tie and tails, um, you know, with their patent leather shoes on, that it's like, oh, this might not be the space for me. But knowing that in my own personal life that I like to wear my sneakers just in and of itself, right? So if I'm just out on the weekends, like, or I might wear you know, my, my Syracuse hat or my Eagles hat um, with my sneakers. And I'm perfectly comfortable in that. And that does not take away anything from me from being a leader. Like I don't have to be in a suit all the time. And if I'm in a suit, then it's okay for me to wear my sneakers with my suit. So knowing that where like the role that I uniquely play as a black executive director, that it's my, my job sometimes to break down those barriers and knowing that like, like, that we have to, as sometimes as, as non-people of color or people of, like, I would never want to go and tell a woman what she can or cannot wear, mm-hmm. right? But I think people feel a certain level of comfortability telling me what I can and cannot wear mm-hmm. um, because of my role. And we know that that has absolutely nothing to do with how I show up to work every day. And that's something that I actually learned, like, that I learned earlier. And I, and I said this to her this summer, and she's a, a woman that's leading an orchestra. And I said, I didn't have other like black executive directors to look up to. So I would look up to the women because they were the minorities in the room. You know, what, no matter what color they might be, like they're the minority. So like thinking about like, how do you show up every day is really like, I had to thank her for it. Cause I said, you've given me a, an opportunity to be my authentic self because you're your authentic self. And that created, like, that was creating a safe, safe and brave space for me to be able to do so. So now I'm able to give that back and do it in a way that's really, really helpful. So I would say that as, like I said, non people of color, what you can do is help emulate and model and check people when they say certain things that might start to break down that ability to create those brave and safe spaces for people to just be who they are and help us model um, moving forward. So yeah. that would be my number one thing to be able to walk away with. Yeah, I, I think that that's really cool. I was shouting out Jennifer Barliament for being that person for me. Mm-hmm. I always look that's up That's exactly what I was talking about. Are you about. talking about Jennifer? Oh, my I'm God. I'm talking about Jennifer Barliament. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, she, uh, I think seeing her just be so her leading an orchestra as a woman just has been such an inspiration for me so much. So it's so cool to hear. And also, sneakers with suits is cool. It looks cool. It I think it's cool. It is, right? It's really cool. Oh I'm just, gosh. I'm waiting for the time where I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm angling for my GQ cover. Like, that's what I'm, that's what I'm going for. So. Um, You're on your so way. It, it's going to happen. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it happen. So if you know somebody, All let right. them know I'm available. <laughs> so as we come to the end of today's episode, we are going to ask you the question that we ask every guest on this podcast at the end of their interview. How do we orchestrate change? Oh, that's a that's a great question. I I say this a lot in in the work that I do, but I but I think that change comes from being intentional about the work that you're doing, knowing where you want to go, having a good reason why you're going in that direction, and just moving forward with your whole authentic self to do so. And by, by, by nature, things will start to change. Knowing that if you're not changing, then you're ultimately dead. So knowing that we have to be able to say, how do I do things differently? How do I do things 
better? How do I innovate? How do I get creative? How do I um, think about things differently? But all of that comes back to like, why am I doing this? And why am I doing this? And why is this important to me? Um, by connecting all of those dots and really saying, I'm going to do each one of these things with my, my whole, I say, I would say, say with your whole chest, uh, that I'm trying to move things forward. I'm trying to push the, trying to move the ball down the field. Uh, and that's ultimately going to create change, but you have to know what it is that you're trying to do and really asking yourself, asking yourself that, that why question is really, really critical. You know, is it to score? Is it to say, I wanted to be first? Is it to say, you know, I wanted to make a deeper impact? Is it to say that, you know, I needed to, I wanted, I need to raise more money. Like all of these things are valid, but like I said, the why is really critical because that's, what's going to, that's, what's going to help you move forward. So doing it, doing it with a certain level of intention or doing it with a sense of I'm trying to get from A to B. I think is going to going to lead you like in the best possible way forward. So I always, like I said, lead with intention, lead with your whole, you know, say it with your whole chest and just do it. And it's going to happen. And then trust in yourself uh, is going to be, that, that would be my third thing. Uh, trust in yourself that you're making the right decisions for the right reasons. And that's how we ultimately do it. Mm. Anwar Nasir, the executive director of the Louisiana Philharmonic Orchestra. Orchestrating Change is a production of the Canton Symphony Orchestra. Our theme music was composed by Eric Gould and performed by Derek Snyder and Tim Adams. Our audio engineer and mixer is Nathan Maslick with video and audio editing by Shoreline Media. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Mm-hmm.